0: Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What Is A Good Life podcast. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you all and I hope 2024 will be your best year yet. If you're new to this podcast, over the last two years I've interviewed over 170 people around this question. It's never been my intention to, to find a universal answer or to find the good life. It's more asking people what is a good life for you. So really by sharing other people's explorations around this question, I'm really trying to help you to find and define your own answer to this question by evoking your own line of self-inquiry. On the 51st episode of the What Is A Good Life podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Richard Merrick as our guest. Richard is a writer who, after decades of working within the walls of convention, writes about the journey from working for others to finding our own path outside those walls, and supports small groups as they make theirs by walking with them. In this conversation, we explore the conditions that Richard incorporates into conversation groups to heighten connection, authenticity and engagement with the unknown and what is. We delve into the importance of letting go of being right, not having set objectives and agendas, disengaging to re-engage and turning up as who we are. We discuss the value of engaging with the unknown for building trust, our ability to make discoveries, for making real human connection and for the melting of the old to form the new. We also explore the role the artisan plays in ushering in the new. For this project or otherwise, Richard is one of the wisest people I've talked to. Typified by consistently reading three books a week for almost 50 years, and yet maintaining his continued willingness to engage with not knowing in various aspects of life. There's so much to take from this episode regarding how you engage with other people, yourself, and life itself, and it may considerably alter your perspective on how you approach various relationships, be it at work or in your personal life. Look, I took a hell of a lot from this conversation. As I mentioned, I think Richard is a, is a rare wise individual, and I hope that you're going to take a lot from this conversation as well. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please continue to leave your lovely reviews as I greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 51st episode of the What Is A Good Life podcast. Richard, thank you very, very much for joining me on the What Is A Good Life podcast today. After our last conversation, I've been very much looking forward to this. Uh, so thank you for joining me.
1: It's good to be here.
0: So Richard, as I tend to kick these things off with, it is with the question of, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life?
1: At this point, the what strikes me is that this sense that... um the workplace and society is moving faster than organisations can keep up. And as uh, individuals and employees we're paying the price. Whether that's in terms of direction, whether it's in terms of mental health, and they're all linked. Uh, we're actually, we find ourselves, I think, on a on a coach where we don't know the driver. And what has been, what came up for me, and it started during lockdown, was that Whilst we're all there being good corporate citizens and, and we're doing all the things that we're supposed to do, all of us have a, all of us have a voice, all of us have something that uh, is about our work as expression of who we are, not just work as a, something that we do. And there's an area in there that as sort of organizations at the moment are thrashing around for control in what is a, a, a very sort of volatile workspace. Uh, And as technology disrupts the skills base so that um, a lot of the time, the things that we've been trained and educated encouraged and bonused and motivated to do is going to be heavily disrupted by technology that does the anodyne stuff better than we do. Uh, And and our value comes from thinking the unthinkable, what Jung would call the the unthought-known and. these ideas that we all have perspectives that are about far more than our intellect. We have a, we have a presence with in the communities we're in. Um, we sense things, we see things, we have things that we can't articulate. And all of those are there like pieces of a jigsaw. And my interest is in finding a space where we can put all those jigsaw pieces into one place. Normally in small groups, and when I find the bigger the group, the more complex the web of relationships, and the more the the, the the more safe the environment has to be, to the point of being vanilla. The real work, the real energy, comes when you've got small groups. I find around eight, where people have developed they've developed a relationship. that, that there's a basis of trust there. And then you can get into the things that matter. You can pick these jigsaw pieces up and start playing with them and looking at where they might fit in the knowledge that none of you know. So it's a bit like children at play. And we get into that area where none of us are right, none of us know, but actually we know that there's something there. And and, and I think what that relates to is, again, different for all of us and where we are in our lives. But there is something there about, about who we are and why we are, where we are now. Uh, And going back to the point at which you started this conversation is what's the direction of your life? And it's not woo and it's not, these are really substantial questions. And I think it was brought into, it was sort of brought into focus really during lockdown where all of the things we just accepted as day-to-day, this is what work looks like and this is how we do it. All got thrown into confusion. And then we, you know, so we, we got into hybrid working and working from office and all of those things that we, we found that we had to do during lockdown. And then somebody said, okay, it's over. Okay, come on back to work now. But during that space, uh, in that space that we had doing that, we're never going to go back to normal because I think we see things differently. It's not a question of, Just going back, it's a question of society has changed. I think our levels of uncertainty have changed. and That was the academic. That was the pandemic. What's next? And I think as things like climate change become more visibly present to us, there is this underlying side for a lot of people. Well, this is, what's my life? What am I doing with this? And actually the, the, the classic recipe of, you know, go to school and you then work for 20 or 30 years and then you do other stuff Um, no longer works I think the 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 things that we people are looking for is money and once you've got enough money it gets fairly boring for most people and I think there's, there's a there's a huge awareness of within community within ourselves that there are things that We want from life and we can contribute to life. And I think maybe that's the bigger part. Wanting stuff from life, that's easy. We know how to do that as consumers. Um, But it's not about consuming life, it's generating life. It's the things that, the things we see, the things we feel, those sort of thoughts that we don't quite often have the space to to speak that are important. And I think it's that. The people I work with, there's there's a classic um, question in in coaching. You wait till the end, and then you say to somebody, "And and, and is there anything else?" And then you get quite on. He goes, "Woof." And I think that's that's a general sort of condition with people at the moment. There is lots of if you if we were just going around to people in the street and saying, "Is there anything else?" You know, you'd take you all day to get down the street yeah. because there's all these things. There's all these. Uh, I know. Variety, ideas, fears, a whole range of things that people are carrying around with them that, are, that there is no space to deal with. Uh, so people are sort of hanging on to them and thinking it's about them and not other people. And so I think the area which you and I have spoken about, which is this idea of having, we sort of term them, a bit clumsily really, but conversations without agenda, which is what's going on. Um and just what's going on with people with no particular end in mind. Just, how are you? Really? Uh, n- and we, we've often said in these groups that they're, they're not therapy, but there is something therapeutic about them. And it used to be the time at one point back in, you know, back in great-great-grandfather's day it was the stuff that was done at the pub uh, or at or church on a Sunday morning, because that's where you went on a Sunday morning. Uh, and it was communities who you were close to and knew. Um, and as we become more fragmented and as we become busier, we don't get those safe spaces. We don't get those, I use the word advisedly, we don't get those sacred moments where we can just be who we are with other people. And I think it matters.
0: It's, um, I love the sense that it's, uh, it's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. Uh, what what role do you see these kind of these spaces uh, fulfilling for people? Again, choice of words. There's a there's a sort of sensory aspect about it.
1: One of the things that was really interesting in the, these groups that we've talked about, the Thursday and Friday groups, was that as people started to go back to work and because they run a one late on a Thursday, one late on a Friday, a late afternoon or evening. I'm
0: sorry, Richard, could you just uh, explain to anyone just what, what these groups are about, how they came to be?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, right back at the beginning of lockdown, uh, I was working with two constituencies in, as a coach. One was people and one was sets of people in fairly conventional business settings, worries about evidence and data and performance and structure and models and how do you do that? And at the other end, it was a more metaphysical community. There were people There were people in indigenous wisdoms, psych drama, shamans, um, all of whom were looking at the world from a different place. And actually, I loved working with both of them. Very different. And um, what I found with it, though, was that if you're trying to get them to talk to each other, they'd talk to each other, but on the basis that they were right. <laughs> right. And lockdown opera, after an opportunity, because I just – put two groups together, 10 on a Thursday, 10 on a Friday, uh, on Zoom, two hours, turn up, what does the world know? In, with what's going on at the moment, what does the world look like from where you are? And there was a, we were saying earlier, there was a, it, was, it wasn't designed to be clever. I think it turned out to be clever because there was no, no objective, there was nothing to prove. There was nothing we were trying to solve. There was nowhere we were trying to get to. It was a little bit digitally looking out of your window and saying, what's going on? And my Jungian friends would refer to it as reverie, but there was just something in there of just relaxing and here's what it looks like from here. And it's easy to forget now, isn't it? Just how, just how existential the threat was at that time. People around us were dying. And so there was something about this space where it was, a, it was just a place where people could come together and look at what was going on. And the conversations always went somewhere something would come up in the first, we'd check in. Everybody would check in and say what they were seeing. Something would come up and then that that idea would take control of the conversation until we checked out. And it was the same every week. And when it came to it, when we were coming sort of back out of lockdown and people were having more difficulty making the Zoom sessions, they were in their cars or whatever it was, I asked the question and said, look, this is... There's nothing that says these things have to continue Have they done their job. And there was a there was a really quite visceral reaction to it, which is no, they haven't done their job. They're, they're doing their job. And the, the comment that stands out for me was somebody said, I need to know these conversations are happening, even if I can't make it. Hmm. If I can't make it, I just need to know that this conversation is happening. And if I was available, I could be there. And if I, if I get space, I can join it at whatever point in the, you know, whatever point, even if it's 10 minutes from the end, thanks can still join it. And so there is something in there about, I think variously, the, the community, the idea that nobody has to perform. Uh, it's about mutual support, mutual recognition. Um, it's not carrying any performance load. It's just turning up and people being recognized for who they are. And... Um, and it does use words that we don't normally use in business. We talk about soul. We, you know, we talk about love, you know, and the, in terms of what was going on, so it sort of it, the conversations happened. I think on the boundary of where most of the conversations people have end. Yeah, and so it was that recognition of our humanity, and it, it's sometimes the words are difficult because we. It's easy to label it and saying, "Oh, there we go." They were very human, very powerful and very important, and remain so, conversations.
0: What is it about this way of conversing, Richard? Because, you know, I've talked to you obviously once before this and it was supposed to be a 30 minute conversation and we got into it for around 90 minutes. Um, A mutual connection of ours, Dan Lawrence, who is a podcast guest as well. you know, I have similar experiences with him, which I assume you do too as well, uh, based on what he's, he's said to me before. And I know. there seems to be something about this. When you're saying this is a conversation on the boundary of where people usually stop, I think there's this there's this kind of sadness that I have sometimes about the conversations that we're having. Sadness might be a bit too heavy a word, but that we're really under underutilizing each other in, in, I don't mean this in an ex, like a transactional exchange, but even in the words that you're using there, even if it was in the sense of support or love, um, where we could be kind of granting each other this sense of support or even aliveness, but we've decided to just, that's a boundary here, let's say, and we're not going to cross it. And just the way you're talking here, some of the elements to these conversations, like even if this was in a a group setting or not, or even just with your friends, this idea that people show up, they're getting to see each other. Uh, there's no agenda. So it's kind of an organic thing. And people are letting, you know, even with these two kind of groups that you were describing, I call them as a scientific and and uh, almost as metaphysical group, yeah. that they're suspending their desire to be right. So it almost yeah. seems like the condition is that there is space for something to emerge because we're not coming in with an agenda or a preconceived notion of a place to get to.
1: Beautifully put. It it is, I think, just that. It's the, I think we're so used to being in performative space. Yeah. Um, of having, having to, to turn up and almost to know, Uh, I was, I was, I was at a meeting in London last week and the person I was with was saying, the thing that's really powerful about this, is says, you, you feel really comfortable and confident in talking about what you don't know anything about. Yeah, <laughs> that's that that that's pretty much it, and um, and it is that I think that area which is where and it just function of our education system. You know, we're we're brought up to be right. We get marks for being right. We don't get marks for wondering. We don't get you know, and be that we don't get. We we operate in a space of efficiency. We don't really. Make time for reflection. So we're very much into the, the 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 doing space, and one of the one of the people I use as a well, he's long dead now, but as a mentor was a guy called John Boyd, who was he was he founded the Fighter Weapons School, and he had a model called Uda Loop, which he developed when he was a, a fighter pilot, uh, and it was about how to deal in the chaos of combat, and. I think one of the things in there, it, the odor is observe, orient, decide, act. If you're talking to people in sabbatical and they're in trouble, it's stop, breathe, think, act. Um, and we don't get to do that. We're in such short term performance loops that we don't get that time to pause. And I think one of the things that the, the conversation groups do is that they provide a space of pause. I think one of the things that, again, has turned out to be important with it is the um, – there's almost no element of ritual and ceremony to it. They, 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 they happen at the same time every week. We go about it the same way. We check in, we talk, we check out. Um, lots of times people will talk to each other one-on-one outside of that. But it is the – I know at this time that is happening with these people in this way. Uh, and if, and I, I can turn up there in whatever mood I am. I can be in a foul mood. I can be in a good mood. It doesn't matter. I'm recognized for who I am. I don't have to be anything in order to enter. And one of the the most common comments, and it, and this has been the case all along, when people leave the, the group, they actually say they, are, they have more energy when they leave than when they came in.
0: Hmm.
1: And given that these are discussions happening at, five thirty on a Thursday and four thirty on a Friday. and um, I actually find that quite quite powerful. It is as though they they come into the thing and all this stuff they're carrying, they get to put down and then they go and have a weekend.
0: You know, it reminds me of what um some friends say to me sometimes when we go into certain conversations and they say something to the effect, I might get a text afterwards, even though what we discussed was kind of heavy, I still feel very light, and yeah. or it felt very light. And I, and I think, um, look, while well, I'm not suggesting that everyone just opens up with their heaviest trauma or something like this, and they just start having these conversations with people and they haven't explored anything, but I also think we've kind of ring-fenced off just talking about what could be relatively straightforward emotional things that we just don't reference in conversations, you know. You know, this could be for the someone could think this could be something for my therapist or something like that. Where, you know, just for someone to say up and state how they feel, I think there's a great liberation to that because what you're talking about, I think, a few times when you say this performance thing, it makes me feel like we're putting on an act so much. Yeah. Like it's not only hitting goals, but it's also being quite performative in how we're describing things. And I, I, I don't know. I have this feeling that. When you said there that somebody said, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like I'm an expert in talking about it, because I think if I were to make a hazard, and a, a guess or an assumption it would be that they're talking about their direct experience, yeah. which you're the only person that truly, truly actually knows what your own direct experience of life yeah. is right now.
1: There was a thing when I was when you were talking about Dan, I met Dan in London last week on Monday. Uh, he's the reverie man for me. But one of the <laughs> things we found ourselves talking about it, it was a conversation not unlike this. And he brought into it what he termed the mobility of play. And it's a lovely, I think, really powerful expression because if you... My, my wife's an early years educator, so if you look at young children, you know, people that are sort of two, three, um, if you watch them playing, they're not bothered about performance at all. And... Um, They will work things out by doing things, by experimenting. Um, They'll communicate in different ways. Uh, And I I thought what Dan said captured it beautifully, which is this idea of the mobility of play. And I think a lot of the time, the way that we've been educated and trained and brought up and rewarded is that we think we have to do it in sets of rules. You know, if, if the rules aren't working, try harder. Yeah, Uh, And instead of actually having that space where we can actually say, guys, this isn't working, what are we going to do? And that needs that area where things like sort of rank and role and expertise and all of those things have to fall away because actually none of us know. And that needs a particular place and a particular level of trust just to actually sort of, if you go back to the, the Boyd thing, it always makes me smile having come from that world when, in the films they get really you know they get really down oh my god Maverick's disengaged of course he has he doesn't know what's going on yeah. he's got to disengage in order to get a grip of what's going on to go back in again and I think there's that's no different to us if we're sat there and you know, we have a choice of we can just speak louder and try harder and you know, actually sometimes you just have to stop go for a walk and then take time out sit by the river come back and talk about it again, and we'll get really excited because somebody will say, that's an hour, and we haven't got an hour. Well, you know, how's it working for you now? Um, so I think that general area of recognising the, I think the power that we have in community, um, not just this thing of bringing in individual expertise like um, tools, and if we actually do it, it'll all work. Sometimes we've got to make space for things that we we have difficulty measuring like wonder and awe um, and curiosity uh, and reflection. And actually, because the answer that we're looking for is there. We were talking earlier about ideas and the idea that we think we have ideas. And quite often, we're not the ideas are out there looking for us. Uh, And sometimes if we're quiet enough, they'll, they'll come and introduce themselves. So this idea of frenetic activity And because that's what we're supposed to do is at this point, there was a time we go back to, I mean, easy for me, I can go back 20 years and that was really important because generally speaking, the models worked. But actually the models are all breaking because, you know, the society and and, and technology is, is is changing our workplace faster than organizations can cope with it. Sometimes you need to just stop and look at it and say to each other, what's going on? Now, things like, how do you feel? We don't say that very often in meetings. Uh, how do you feel about this? You know, engaging the other senses. We go through, and it's like, a bit like going into Gestalt. You know? we, we talk about intellect, but we don't talk about emotion or intuition or physical sensation. And all of them are important. And it's not a let's go on a yo weekend thing. These are important every day in every meeting. You can see it when you look around the meeting table. You can see who's you can see who's tense. You can see who's not. You can see who's got something to say but is afraid to say it. Um, and sometimes we just have to park that tension. And take away from it. Let's you know nothing performative here. We're not going to talk about what's going on at work. How are you? What's going on for you? And have that conversation, and then go back in again to disengage in order to reengage. And it's so obvious, and we don't do it.
0: Isn't it kind of crazy? Like whether this was in a in a meeting, in a discussion with any, like whether in work or outside of work, whatever it may be, that almost the starting point to a conversation wouldn't be how do you feel or how, yeah. how are you? <laughs> you know, a, gonna...
1: a, one of my colleagues on the Thursday group when. Um, and what we'll do sometimes in the, in the middle of a meeting, we'll just say, let's just stop for two minutes. Um, and he said that when he, when he first did it, because he, he runs a big business, he said, felt a bit weird. And then he tried it himself at a, you know, in a meeting. Uh, and everybody looked at him, so he was a bit weird. Said, let's take two minutes, just stop for two minutes, just, and then we'll start again. And then he said what he found interesting is that the people in that meeting who thought he was weird are doing it themselves. Yeah. And, it, and I think that's it, it's this space for the unconventional to enter. Um, you know, we have, we've developed so many protocols. We have so much dogma about this is how you're supposed to act. This is what you're supposed to do. And actually we're human. And sometimes in the middle of the tension, just stopping for a minute, um, and it's, you know, we we time it. We normally do it for two minutes, and on the one hand, two minutes is a long time, and on the, on the other hand, it's forever. Uh, but some it's that discontinuity. It's just it's actually sort of putting an interrupt into the energy and direction of the meeting, because actually it's not going where we want, where we need it to go. So we need to stop it and let it reorient. Um, and they're really simple, really human. I mean. This is not a question if you're going to go off and do some long course on it. This is basically turning up as who we are.
0: And when you say that, I even think about even my wife saying that sometimes. Like, you know, just let's like we literally don't need to keep carrying on right now. Like, let's just take a moment and and not even in some highly, it doesn't have to be even in a highly contentious situation, just like just take a breath and let everything just settle down again yeah. and then like move from, move from that place as well. Like, I think there's, um, it's when you say certain, like, you know, how are you, how are you feeling? And let's take a pause for a moment. Like it's kind of amazing that these almost seem, they could seem like radical acts in a, in a corporate environment, you, yeah. you know, like that, it that this would be seen as, as strange or something. Like when they're so fundamental just to the the human experience like as you say no wonder why maverick disengages he doesn't know what he's doing he doesn't know what's happening right now he needs he needs space what do you think it is about that like or even our idea around unfilled space um almost space for possibility? Like, is it the sense of ambiguity or uncertainty that, that perhaps people might associate it with it? Or, or what do you think?
1: I think sometimes it's fear. Because if we take it, and we, we talk in terms of liminal space, I was smiling when you were talking about it, because when we first started having these conversations, people in the Thursday group would go, oh, we're going to have a weird hippie shit moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that stopped really very quickly. But I think the, the, the thing with alchemy is you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a simple process. It breaks down. We look at the parts that are important from it. We start to reform them and what's new comes out of it. But that liminal space where the old is melting and the new is forming um, is very challenging, particularly in organizations where people, particularly in the middle and towards the top, are really hoping it won't melt because that's the stuff they know. That's how they've got to where they go. That's where that's where their influence and status and knowledge lies. And all this idea of new stuff coming in that they don't understand is really difficult. And it's the same. You know, we tend to think of it. I think it's time increments, really. If we're taking it down, we could go. You know, it, it's, it's a different. We're different every day. We walk into a different business every day. The business itself changes during the day, um, but somehow we think it has to behave because. For God's sake, we've written a plan, you know, um, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. And, and you you know, often see these um, people will talk about it outside and you know, having a drink afterwards. We've got this plan, but we know it's crap. Um, but nonetheless, it's almost like it's become totemic. Um, we've got to follow it because we did it and everybody approved it. Therefore, we've got to do it. And it is that really simple bit at the edges, which is, and um, it's the thing is, it's really simple. I think the thing that intrigues me and often infuriates me is that all we have to do is stop and ask. But we create performance cultures that are where everybody is so worried about not performing that nobody will give it the space. Without recognizing that what they really need to right that minute is not to be looked to be you know, not not to be seen to be performing, but to be thinking. And and it's a I think it's a challenge that will it will solve itself because we're not organizations are going to have to get to grips with it. They can't you know then go around and be in denial of it. They can we can't say on the one hand um, it's all right now because we've got AI if we've reduced our jobs to the point where AI replace them, can, can replace them, then sort of shame on us. Because it's the things that we do with AI as a, as, as a complement to what we do that matters. And so I think it is this, it comes down to respect, recognition, time, um, not being stupid, um, just actually finding that space and I think, well, what I'm seeing happening, not totally true. Some of the people I talk to in organisations are saying, how do we do this inside the organisation? Which is quite often more difficult than having a bunch of people who don't know each other because you've got politics and whatever in it. But there are still ways, I think, that we're experimenting with at the moment. of How can you create these spaces inside an organisation? The other side, too, which I've also seen is that people are going to do it anyway. So there are there are areas that in technology that I'm interested in where actually the really the really motivated people, they go off and they meet with other people doing the same job as them in other companies and they talk about what needs doing. And, and the companies that they're coming from have having a clue what's going on. I often wonder what would happen if these bunch of people that I see talking together would I have an idea, you know, all of a sudden and they all left the business that they were part of and the business would be going, What? Yeah, uh, But it's that, we're down to, again, common things. It's about being heard. It's about being recognized. It's about being heard. It's about it's okay not to know. Um, it's about discovery happens at the conjunction of not knowing and knowing. Uh, yeah. But you've got to give them both space to appear. I mean, all you've got to do really is get old and have gray hair. That's how it works. <laughs> well,
0: you you preempted what I was just about to ask there. What did you... Um... What's your relationship with this kind of space of unknowing? Like, how would you say this has evolved for you? And like, at one point in your life, would you have? Has this generally been the way you've seen things, or at one point in your life, would you say this is a a radical departure from where you were?
1: It's an evolution, I think, because I'm not normal. Um, So I spent most of my career on the edge of where either doing either forming things or breaking things up and um, where there were no rules that no, the it was generally speaking it was i did some of the first joint ventures in china um i did anti-counterfeiting in india and uh, generally speaking it was just very fluid there were no there was no book on how to do it and, and i've always enjoyed that I, mean, I was probably dropped on my head at birth but that's 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 what i've enjoyed but for a long time having said that um one, I mean, I read a lot because I enjoy reading a lot. But one of my defences would be I just gather information. So you get into the middle of this where people didn't know what to do. And there'd always be something that I could bring into it as, as a catalyst for the discussion. But it was often based on knowledge. Right. And if I take it through to now, that's sort of got an inheritance, really. Because quite often now the thing that needs to happen is not to say anything. And even now, it's a, real, it's a real conscious fight. And when you know people well enough, they'll, they'll say, you're doing it again, <laughs> um, is we're looking at a space and i will think, ah, oh, I know what I could do. And it's not sometimes, no, not sometimes, almost always there's a point where you've just got to stop. What needs to appear will appear. The more you try to force it into a corner, the more you try and tell it what to do, the less it cooperates. So um, probably in the last five years, it's been... If I was graphing it, you know, in terms of the level of change, the last five years has been significant um, because the way that I operate now is very different to the way I, that I operate five years ago. Um, and if I could live to be 150, it would be very different to the way I'd be operating then. Um, there is a joy, though, that, that I find to it, which is it's all right just to be you. You know, just turn up because you've got enough. So is everybody else. And... Um, The labels we put on people and the the, the images we project and the stories we tell about ourselves and about uh, that. We tell ourselves about us and us about them um, are normally a nonsense. And that requires, and that's perhaps just a function of getting older, but that requires degrees of humility and keeping the ego quiet and looking at what's important and making space.
0: This is a, this is a lovely sentiment or I think a realization for anyone to have the, the sense of it's all right just to be you. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know if there's Oscar Wilde or something that said it, it's, uh, you know, just be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Yeah. It's kind of, and look, the word authenticity, I, it kind of gives me the shivers sometimes with the way that it's used, um in what I consider to be kind of a disingenuous way at times, like it's become very um, it's become very trendy or something to use like that. But like really the idea that we've had to remind ourselves to be ourselves and just in all the kind of aspects of you're talking about uh, performing and, and performative nature and, and these kind of things, like it is quite like, I don't know, it is quite, there seems to be something really that sounds like quite a contradiction in that state like, or an oxymoron or something like th- There sounds something quite kind of funky about the idea that we have to remind ourselves to be ourselves.
1: Yeah.
0: There was a, there
1: was a time I was using, one of the models I use is it, I find it quite fluid is Bill Sharp's three horizons model, if I'm talking to people. And I found myself, I was talking to somebody well th- three, four years ago now. Um, and we ended up because it was that sort of conversation where we said, that's that's a bit like us, isn't it? You know, we sort of, we have this idea. So so here's a notion. You arrive, and we can go to the, you know, all sorts of codes on this, but let's assume for a moment, here's a working model. You arrive, get born, and you're given a soul. It's been used before, but it's yours for a while. Okay, rent a soul. (laughs) Um, And your only job in life is to hand that soul over in better condition than you found it. And it was quite interesting when we were talking about three horizons. And it was really powerful because there's whether that's true or not, I mean, other, other views are available. But I think that idea of um, we're the only one of us that will ever be. And there's a difference we can make while we're here. Um, we can either embrace the challenges of doing that, some of which might quite often be difficult, um, or we could ignore it and that
0: seems a bit of a waste really right? i've had this thought recently where our only our only role in life is to play that very unique note that we may be yeah <laughs> you know and and that that's it and then after that the chips may fall where they where they may and yeah. for me anyway it gives me a lot of peace in choices that i make or Idea or actions that I create or whatever it may be, because I, I don't know. There's just it takes a lot of pressure off. Yeah. Like there's because I I love looking at this through different like uh, lines of inquir- inquiry. Whether it was you know if you wanted to reduce your ego or become your natural your natural self or. You know, even from that say a perspective, I may hold that we may be fragments of the divine or so, or something like this. And but you're returning to something that you know, even when you mentioned earlier the idea that we don't have a we don't own thoughts. Yeah. Like, I really like the idea that these things are just kind of flowing in and out of us and that we're not owning these things and potentially like even a even a soul, a rent a soul scenario, like that it it's just to it's just to be this unique constellation that you are right now. And yeah when you mentioned some of these groups, I think that seems almost fundamentally what you're giving people the space to do as well is to, if I'm, if I'm in a pissed off mood, if I'm feeling absolutely joyous, I can show up like that. And I don't have to go through that, that process of putting on another layer on top of me, either to tone it down or to dial it up. Yeah.
1: There's a guy called Sir Christopher Freeland. Who was uh, the uh, dean of the Royal College of Art? And he talked about villages of the mind, and I think that's one of the things that you know when we're when we're uh, as, as fragmented now as we tend to be, there are areas here, there are villages of the mind. Uh, we all need somewhere to belong.
0: It's. Um... There's, there's something about a empty space becoming something that, I, I, I don't know, there's some, just when you're saying that we all need villages to belong, there's something about an empty space and just uh, allowing that, like I love the idea of bringing people together where they almost create the... And to, to steal your metaphor here, they're almost creating like a, a village. They're creating an experience. Even the fact that someone who's not you mentioned earlier that isn't on this call still wants to know that this place exists, yeah. even when they're not there. You, you know, there, there's something like about like a whether it's like a foundation on, built on reverie or interconnections yeah. or or whatever it may be that something is forming in this empty space.
1: And the opposite is also true, of course. They need to know that it's happening, but the people who are talking know that he or she is not there, um, but they're present. It is. I mean, it's really when I say simple, it's, it's, it's not simple, but it is quite profound. It's it, it is belonging, um, and a workplace is generally speaking, and not communities. Yeah. No matter no matter what the. HR hype may say, and um, there you know, people are transient, and um, and we need somewhere rather firmer than that to belong.
0: Just to when you're even there talking about the sense of belonging and maybe even belonging within ourselves, and I think something that contributes to that, which you touched on earlier, which I really like the idea of, and um, because it's even the way I've typically framed this, uh, what do I want from life, or Helping people realize what they want from life, or living the life that they want to live, or something to this yeah. effect. But I think almost a more fundamental question is, what do I want to contribute to life? And you'd mentioned this expression earlier, and and I think I I, I don't know I I think that this is almost like one of the fundamental questions that people are. Are trying to, to answer at this point and even touching on the theme that you've brought up a few times just in covid helped or created the the circumstances for us mm. to to question these things and um, but i do think that question of what do i want to contribute to life is something that goes beyond even the what do i want from life part
1: yeah no i think that's right i mean for the, for my own part at, uh, at this point if i was having a discussion last week because the new artisans thing has now been going 18 months we sort of, uh, we had a session of saying, where do we want this to go? And, and what's my role in this? And Richard Merrick's role in it, which appears to be fumbling with the future, uh, <laughs> but the, which I quite like. But I think that we can do ourselves a disservice. We've become so attached to sort of goals and performance and outcomes that we forget just the importance of concentrating on what we're doing at the moment. So, I mean, I was, I was actually saying from my point of view, I'm, I'm not looking to get an outcome. I'm working on a principle. I, I write every day. I, not because it's a, no, it, it is a discipline. I, I journal in the morning and I write something on new artisans. Um, and that's, that's a, a discipline. I do it because I enjoy it. and I'm trying to be a writer and I'm trying to improve my writing. and That's the way I do it. But the it's not about an outcome. It's not about trying to get something to happen. But it does sit there, and it comes from the conversations, which is that sometimes something that you write touches somebody else, and they do something slightly different. It's a bit like paying it forward. Have you ever done? I, I have done this. It's, it, have you ever confused people by going into a, a motorway toll and paying for the for the person behind as well?
0: Yeah, not in a toll, but in different other places. Yeah,
1: yeah, and confuses the hell out of. Us. But actually, you look at what happens from them. You know, you imagine what's happening for them. It's put them in a different place. So I think if if, if we're, whatever we're doing, uh, if we do it on the basis of this, you know, this might have an effect somewhere and just trust that it does, you don't need it to come back and get a big gong or you know, it It doesn't need that. It just needs, I think, an intent to say in doing this, um, I hope it will trigger something somewhere else. And just leave the rest of it to whatever it is.
0: But isn't isn't that a, isn't that interesting that you know people that may participate in this will say that they feel lighter afterwards, or that yeah. they, and that we need some like you know because if you picture that like if you had X amount of people showing up to a certain space like this, yeah. and everyone leaves the room feeling lighter, and picture that almost at the the center point of a ripple out through how numerous interactions would go throughout yeah. the rest of the day you know, that would be, that could be the, the effect or, you know, the way we might try and calculate Absolutely. what's the ROI on this or, or whatever it may be. But, you know, we're not just, we're not content with just the ripples existing. We have to, to measure the ripples and, and, yeah. and, and test how far uh, the diameter yeah. of the ripples and everything else. And it, I
1: don't think, the, I have this, what, what I, what, no, one of the things in, in terms of this work that, let's call it work for a minute, is that uh, there's no qualification, there's no certification. All you have to do is sit down and talk to somebody. You know, any of us any of us can do it. Um, yeah. And I, there's, a, there's a book called Cascades by Greg Sattel, and he was on the ground during the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. And he's an investigative journalist. And One of the things he noticed, he did a really good job in mapping the dynamics of that revolution. And he actually said it wasn't a movement. What there were, there were lots of, lots and lots of small groups all of whom had a thread of dissatisfaction with the way the country was. But it wasn't. they weren't in connection, they weren't talking to each other about it. But there was then a keystone event, and they all gathered around it. So it was almost like everything was prepared, and then it went. And I think there's something of that in what we do. You now, our workplace is going to change. Uh, the idea of being an employee in the conventional sense is either going to be scarcer or more miserable, or probably both. Um, what we do, how we contribute, how we earn a living—we uh, need to work that out, and nobody else is going to do it for us. Um, what we can do is talk to each other about it, and it's—it's about—it's about getting your retaliation in first. It's about being prepared, I think, and it's that. What what do we do? We work as humans.
0: Yeah. Just intrigued uh, for you to explain how you how you kind of settled on the word uh, artisan and the the significance of that for the the work you're doing okay
1: and um, like most of the stuff i do it was a place to start when, from all the reading I've, I've, I've been doing one of the things that i noticed was that if you take epochal change and um, american revolution industrial revolution the renaissance at the point at which it tips from what was into what is becoming. Artisans are always there. So if you take the American Revolution, all the people who tipped that perfect good tea over the side were artisans. They are all craftspeople. Paul Revere was a silversmith. Um, if you go to the Industrial Revolution, you've got people like Watt and Newcomen who were actually enge- artisan engineers. They created the machinery that then powered the revolution. And one of the... Uh, One of the reasons for that, and probably the American Revolution is is the best example right now, which is that the reason that that they had a structure, so they had a a guild structure, there was trust. They had a common structure in how they worked and what the standards were. And so when it came to communication, they actually were were speaking a common language. They knew each other. There was respect. There was was reputation. So when they communicated, they, they communicated really well. And so on that cusp between the old failing and the new emerging, that level of communication and clarity was really important. And, of course, the thing is with all of those artisans, it's a bit like alchemy. As soon as the, the job really gets going, they become irrelevant.
0: Hmm.
1: They go back to being a silversmith. Or, but in that time in the middle where the old, is, the old is failing and the new is forming, they're really important there because they make stuff artisans you know, i think there's a couple of things about it for artisans the work is the work it's it's an, it's an expression of who they are um and they know how to make stuff they know how to create stuff so when the old is failing and the new is emerging they're the people who know how to create and so it's it's an imperfect metaphor but like lots of these things it was a place to start
0: now I, I really like that what's You've touched on this sense a, a few times. The the old is failing, and the new is is forming. Is this just an inherently messy phase? Is there anything like? Is there anything that aids this phase? Is it is it does it have to be somewhat chaotic in order for the new to form? I,
1: I, I think it does. If you um, there's a great book by Margaret Weekly called "Who Do We Choose to Be." And in it, she talks about John Bagger Gubb's work. When, and, and He was a, a military man, uh, beginning of the 19, uh, 20th century. Uh, but he did a huge piece of work on civilizations. <clears throat> he tracked back through 13 civilizations and looked at the commonalities um, and looked at the phases, how they actually developed and came up with the fact that plus or minus, they last about 250 years. And They start with the emergence of the new, quite often with invasion being invaded, and it goes up through a commercial phase, and and it ends up in decadence. Think about decadence: the people who worship a sports star, you know, sports stars and celebrities, and and it's again it's imperfect, but like lots of these things, there is a message in it, and we can go to other things. So we can go to um, brains gone and. Homo Deus and brain's gone. Um, but lots of people who've done looking at the epoch, things like guns, germs, and steel. And um, no, it's going to be messy. Um, but I think that depends how you look at it. It'll be messy if you're you know, if you're invested in the status quo. Um, it may still be messy, but hugely liberating if you're not.
0: And in this, then, it, are we assuming some sort of I don't know, like humanity revolution, or you know, like a, a sense of humanness coming back to society? Like, uh, like, how do you kind of, how would you kind of characterize how you see things uh, coming into 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 new? I really don't know, and I think the thing that probably makes it different at this point compared to previously,
1: um is we've done a pretty good job at putting the planet on, at risk. And so all the other epochal changes didn't have that problem. Yeah, <laughs> and, and even now, there's going to be things that we think are there. Uh, there's a lovely bit I was watching, I hadn't seen it, it was in the film the other night, called Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks. right? And it goes back to it's when the U2 was shot down with Gary Powers knows it was about the, the spy exchange. There's a lovely bit in there where Tom Hanks is talking with the, the East German who is the prisoner the Americans have got. And he says to me, are you not worried? This guy looks at him very intently and says, "Hmm, do you think that'd help? (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, really powerful, lovely line in it. Um, And so that's where I sort of sit with it. I mean, I can't get too anxious about it, really. What I think the, um, if we were to spend more time, I think, considering what it is we're doing today, uh, and less about what we might have to do tomorrow,
0: and
1: we might do rather better.
0: Yeah, yeah. In terms, in terms, Richard, then though of, I guess there seems to almost be like the like a, a coinciding between the ideas that are coming to you and this idea of a group what's what's needed in society right now. It seems almost to be like a bit of a an antidote then for like just some of the, not only just maybe even some of the things we were talking about in the relational restrictions and all that, but we're just in the overall lens of, or the overall umbrella of just some of the chaos that seems to be going on in the planet at the moment. It seems almost like that this serves as a space where people can kind of just, I don't know, sit in this unknowing sit even in their feelings with what they're experiencing and even if it's not to come up with a solution, uh, I think there's just, for me anyway, on a personal level, there's a lot of peace that I can come to with just acknowledging what is, um, yep. because it just takes away just to to kind of riff off what you said there with the, the bridge of spies with the, the prisoner. Do you think that would help? Like, uh, you know, in terms of worrying, like there seems to be a lot of peace that can just come to acknowledging this is how I'm feeling. This is the current situation. Um, And just to even express that, because I think what seems to what seems to cause a lot of suffering in people's lives is just not addressing not even the elephant in the room, even just on a on a personal level, not even in a in a in overall societal sense, but just not addressing the the obvious. And I I think as humans, I, I don't think we realize how much extra baggage we carry by just not we don't have to solve it, we don't have to figure it out, but just, ah, somebody else sees that too, okay. I get some, and even going back to this idea you said earlier about being seen, there's just some peace that comes with that. Yeah.
1: I think there's a, uh, and one of the problems, I don't know, one of the challenges we have is that we we sort of suck it up because we have so much more we can do from 24-hour news to Twitter to to whatever it may be. We can We have this huge sort of, like a basking shark, we have this you know, huge maw open to suck in all this information um, most of which is irrelevant to us Yeah, and, and I think the idea of being grounded with a few people is that's where to start, you don't have to stay there and hide And um, but I think if you go down to and Viktor Frankl had it nailed really in Man's Search for Meaning um, and I mean in, in my own thing you know the um 12 years in the Air Force and some of that involved you know, doing, you know, getting into places that you know, your mother should say you shouldn't really go there <laughs> um, and the, the, when you do that the, the, the thing that matters is the people around you and even in the midst of what seems to look quite cruddy really you can actually sort of look at each other and say oh, this, is, this is rubbish isn't it always to that effect yeah. um, but actually it's just for the people around you, you know, all the stuff that's out there all the rest of it at that point doesn't matter and you know we are we are each our own you know, strategist. We we deal with what we're we're dealing with. But I think the for me the the, the thing that, that I the way that I understand it is not the truth. But I think connection to an idea, connection to something worthwhile, connection to people, and and just actually doing the best you can in that space, everything else will follow.
0: Yeah, and I, I just you know from from everything you've been saying throughout this conversation richard like even to that like you know the sense of community the importance of support uh people being seen even engaging with some ideas like love and soul the the idea of just taking a pause taking a break you know even the the sense of engaging with uh, engaging with uncertainty checking almost the temperature of reality you know even the initial change or challenge that you said or the question you were exploring at the moment and the pace of technology and change and how can people and corporations keep up with that Um, and then also even looking from like what do we want from life potentially and then maybe even evolving into to what i can contribute to life and you know, you've shared so many kind of fascinating aspects of, I, th- I think, what contributes to a good life, even in terms of experimentation yeah. and play and these things. Um, just for the, the question for you, Richard, uh, what, what is a good life for you, sir?
1: I think right now, pretty much where I am. Um, the easiest way to be wealthy is not to need very much. Yes, and I don't need very much, and I appreciate what I've got.
0: And how would you how would you describe what you what's contributed to to that sense of feeling for you right now?
1: An absolute astonishment! I've got to this point
0: um, <laughs> that, I
1: <haven't, laughs> that, that I haven't been found out along the way, um, and I think the I'm very fortunate. Um, mm good family, you know, good health. and um, There is a point at which you can, I think we can look at things and just appreciate the, the joyous, the joyous absurdity of life. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think the, if there is a trick to it, um, it's not to take it too seriously and not to expect too much of it. And um, I think we have, you know, I, I have a, I have a challenge with 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 the consumer mentality we have, and the North Americans have a a mythical uh, monster called the witico, and the witico is a monster whose appetite grows in direct proportion to what it consumes, so it's always ravenous
0: yeah
1: and um, and that seems to me quite a good metaphor sometimes for what we're doing, and we should
0: probably stop <laughs> oh i um I I very much uh, that very much resonates with me Richard there's uh, I, I must check that out as well because I, I love this idea of uh, something the appetite grows in direct uh, relation to how much it consumes yeah. and, and I think that really that really captures things I was <laughs> I was informed by somebody yesterday that it was Amazon Amazon Prime Day and I just had this idea of the masters chirping like a uh, jump and everyone <laughs> everyone running to their computers to to buy everything. And I thought, Jesus. This I happened.
1: mean, you realize that Amazon will be bankrupt if it wasn't for me. <laughs> I, people laugh at me for it, but I I, I regard books as sort of, for, 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 for the work I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, Books are sort of stuck in the, 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 the working capital. You know, you've got to have something you bring into it so i'm and look on average i've read i think three books three, three books a week probably right. for the last fifty years so there's a few and
0: um. just bef- before i uh before i wrap up on uh, <laughs> because I was about to wrap up and then you mentioned that is, <laughs> it, is there is there a book uh out of everything you've read richard is there a book that you'd like that touched you the most and that you'd think that might have void appeal. One in terms
1: of what we're talking about, and I, it's a recent one, but it's that. It's called Crossing the Unknown Sea. Right. Um by David White. David White's a poet. And it's it's quite biographical. And um, but he cheats because he writes about all the stuff we talk about, but he writes about it like a poet. So there's absolutely no defence against what against how he writes and what he writes. But it's, he wrote that, and he wrote a, one subsequently called The Three Marriages, which is about our, our marriage to work and our marriage to ourselves, our marriage to them, and our marriage to, to another. And they're both. I, I've really enjoyed them. And perhaps that's a, that may just be at this point. Um, but I think if I was, it, it, if you were saying to me today, given this conversation, what should I go and read? Go and read Crossing the End then see Wonderful. It's an easy read, quite deep and very thought-provoking.
0: Richard, look, thank you very, very much for the conversation today, all that you've shared, all the, the ideas that you've shared and the, the sentiments as well, and then this unexpected bonus of a, of a book review as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so it's been an absolute pleasure, Richard, and, and, uh, and I look forward to carrying on the conversation.
1: Good seeing you. Take it easy. Go well.